0: Father, open our eyes to see what it is you want us to see in your word, soften our hearts to receive it, to allow it to penetrate into the recesses of us, to encourage us where we desperately need encouragement, to challenge us where we need to be challenged. Uh, May it lead us to love our Lord, to see him more clearly, to fall before him in, in more heartfelt praise we pray this in his holy and beautiful name. Amen. When I was in high school, I uh, did a summer missions trip three summers in a row called New York Gospel Outreach. Uh, It was a pretty formative experience for me, and that's 15, 16, 17 formative years in terms of how we develop and grow as humans, but also as a Christian, and and the way it worked is uh, it was was kind of a two-week, two-part, two-week trip, and the first week we'd go to a nice part of Manhattan, and it was part of a big conference. And so, churches from around the country really would send their youth groups to this, and there would be kind of worship and teaching. And then in the afternoons, we would go out to various parks and places around New York City and try to share the gospel with people. Very similar to what we do in our, in our neighborhood walks. Like, we weren't, you know, handing out tracts or anything like that. We were just sitting on a you know, public bench next to a New Yorker. And, uh, and the amazing thing is, New Yorkers are so desperately lonely because there's so many of them, that if you're willing to listen, people will share their life story with you, and it's, it's actually an amazing, uh, uh, amazing opportunities to be able to talk to people about, about the love of Jesus Christ. And then the second week, you'd go to a not-so-nice part of Manhattan. This is back when there were still not-so-nice parts of Manhattan, and we uh, partnered, it was just our church, we partnered with a local church, we slept in a basement, and we did VBS clubs um, for kids in, again, lower-income neighborhoods. And so you imagine, again, you know, a week of, of you know, kind of uh, worship and, um, and teaching and then sharing your faith, uh, deeply, you know, exhausting, but also incredibly exciting. And then you spend another week, again, doing VBS for kids who, like, come from pretty rough places. And just, I mean, in terms of the, the uh, a, a deeply, em- like, emotional, impactful Experience. And then halfway through the second week, we would do this I don't know what to call it, I guess like a community building exercise. But what's happened is our group at this point would be about 15 students, and you'd receive the name of one person in the group, and you're supposed to write a letter of affirmation to them affirming who they were, strengths you thought they had, how you saw God at work in their lives. And later that night, we gathered as a group, and you would read your letter for whoever you were affirming, and then everyone else would go around and say affirming things about that person as well. Some of us who are maybe a little bit more private are feeling very uncomfortable picturing this. But it was an incredible, beautiful uh, experience. Many times people would be in tears by the end. It was truthfully the most profound experience of non-romantic love I've ever experienced. Because, again, these aren't compliments. It's not like, oh, you got nice hair, you're really fast, you're funny. it would be like, hey, I've seen how God's made you. He's made you in a certain way. I've seen how he's used that in this trip to advance his kingdom, and it's a beautiful thing. And to have peers speak into peers. Again, like 15-year-olds are more likely to cut each other down. But to have an experience, you have 15 of your peers speaking into you, telling you, Strengths they see in you. I still have my letters. As a 35-year-old man with three kids, I still have my letters somewhere. Uh, I haven't read them in many, many years, but it's impactful to have someone affirm you like that. Now, I'm I'm telling the story for a reason. First, John, as you read through it, it can seem like like John is mostly trying to challenge his his readers, because he builds his letter around these three tests of authentic Christianity. And so it can come across like, well, am I passing the test? Am I an authentic Christian? But again, John's goal actually is to encourage the church. Uh, He's trying to tell them, hey, you are the authentic church. You are the true church, and this is how you can know it. And he's trying to affirm them. And And I think John pauses in the midst of this letter Because he realizes as he gives these tests, hey, it could sound like I'm I'm trying to challenge you and say, hey, do you measure up? Are you passing these tests? That's not my goal. Let me take an aside where all I'm going to do is I'm going to affirm you as a church that I know. And so here in the text we have this morning, it's a spiritual father who knew this church well, who may have led some of them to Christ himself, who had pastored and shepherded them for years, speak to them and affirm them and tell them what is true. And he basically writes, telling them that they are the true church, for their sins are forgiven, for they know Christ, and they've overcome the evil one. So our outline this morning for us, it's going to kind of fall this, this uh, you know, who he is addressing. The first point is to new Christians, your sins have been forgiven. Second point, to mature Christians, you know Jesus. The third point, to young Christians, you have overcome the evil one. Now, a quick recap again of what 1 John, what's happening in 1 John. John is writing to a church that has gone through an, a church split that was ugly. There were teachers who came in. They were teaching false teachings that contradicted the message of Christ. And then they left, and they took many Christians with them. And John is writing to the church that remained to try to encourage them, to affirm them, yes, you are, in fact, the true church. And this is how, these are the distinguishing marks of what authentic Christianity looks like, which, by the way, those false teachers all failed. That's the point of this. And so again, he gives these three tests, which he goes over multiple times throughout the letter. The first is a moral test. First test of authentic Christianity is a moral test. It's, are we being obedient to the commandments of Christ? The second test of authentic Christianity is a social test. Are we loving one another? And then finally, the third test is a doctrinal test. Belief in Jesus as the Christ who came in the flesh. Last week, we looked at the social test, love for one another, and it's It's easily summed up in chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. But again, before John moves on to this third test, the doctrinal test, he takes an aside and he wants to speak words of encouragement and affirmation to his beloved church. Now I want to go over the structure a little bit. Again, he he addresses three different groups. He addresses children, then young men, and fathers. And he does it twice. Uh, He he comes back around and addresses them again. So we're actually going to take uh, the, the, the addresses together. So instead of going verse by verse through, we'll take the two addresses to children, then the two addresses he gives to young men, the two addresses he gives to fathers. But the question is, who are these people? Is he literally addressing the children of the congregation? and the young men of the congregation, and the fathers of the congregation. And there's some debate over this, but I think the answer is pretty obviously no. These are supposed to be categories for Christian growth. So when he addresses the children in the church, he's addressing those who are new in their faith, who've just come to know Christ, who are still figuring out what discipleship looks like, who are glorying in the first taste of salvation. When he addresses young men, he's addressing those. Okay, so young, a young man in the ancient world would have been 26 to forty, which means, by the way, if you're a college student, you're still a child in the biblical uh, uh, framework. So, anyways, you got to think twenty six to forty. You're 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 kind of in the prime of your life. You're you know conquering the world. You're 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 establishing yourself. So, spiritually speaking, you know you didn't just become a Christian. You're you, you've been following Christ for a little while, and then finally the fathers, those who've been walking with Christ for many years, for decades even. And he addresses each of these three groups. <clears throat> and affirms them. Now, one question before we again get to his address to the children, to the new Christians, is why are only men mentioned in this? Uh, you could read this and think, "Well, does John have anything to say to the women of the church?" Uh, and that could be a stumbling block. And I, and I and I don't want us to get too hung up on this because all that's happening is this is a somewhat archaic way of speaking. So, 50 years ago, if you read books from back then, they'll talk about, you know, the fate of man depends on so-and-so, and when they wrote that, they didn't literally mean the fate of every male is dependent, but females are not included in this. It was a, it was a generic term to kind of cover all of humanity, and it's very similar. ESV, the, the, the translation we use, the ESV, is just a very literal translation, and so it's translating in somewhat of a more archaic way than we would use in English today, but when he refers to young men, he's referring to the young people in the church refers to the fathers, referring to the, the fathers and mothers in the faith, those who've been walking with Christ for a long time. And in fact, some translations will kind of take account for this. So the New Living Translation actually translates it, I write to you who are young in the faith instead of young men. But anyway, so when you see young men, is those who are young in the faith. When you see fathers, it's, uh, it's those who are fathers and, and mothers in the faith. So let's get to our first point. To new Christians, your sins are forgiven, Follow along as I read verse 12 and part of 13. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then again, I at the end of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. As John addresses those who are new in faith, he addresses two kind of important realities that those who have recently professed faith experience two realities that are, that are kind of predominant in those, in those initial experiences of faith in Christ and discipleship. Uh, should I switch to this mic? Okay, okay. Um, you're the man. Um, so for the first experience that's kind of, again, predominant in, in, in the experience of salvation is joy in the forgiveness of sins. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. It's interesting, in our culture, we, we very much desire the opportunity for do-overs. If you play golf, everyone loves a ball again. We desire the opportunity to, for a clean slate. We see it in movies as diverse as WALL-E and Gravity. So if you've seen the cartoon WALL-E, it's about how you know, humanity has, has polluted the earth to the point where it's not habitable, they have to leave. And at the end of the movie, they, they finally come back, and the earth has somehow become habitable again, and they're able to return to this kind of like pristine beauty of, of the Earth, and it's, it's, a start, it's, a, it's a way to start over. It's, it's really touching. It's beautiful. Or if you've seen the movie Gravity about uh, it's Sandra Bullock, and she's an astronaut, and at the end of the movie, uh, she crashes back to Earth in like an escape pod, and she emerges again in this kind of like tropical, kind of primal-looking place, and it clearly is symbolizing this woman who had great grief that she was running from, this kind of rebirth, a chance to start again. The problem with all of those uh, uh, rebirths is that it's not quite so simple. Y- the people who come back to Earth in Wally, they're just going to pollute the Earth again because nothing's changed in humanity, right? And it's, it, uh, you know, if only it were so simple as crashing into a, into a lake as if that could somehow free you from all your past you know, tragedies and burdens, That's why the forgiveness of sins is such a glorious thing. I write to you, little children. Your sins are forgiven. What that literally means is that God doesn't remember them. The only one in the world whose opinion it matters, he he has divine amnesia. He doesn't recall it because the blood of Christ cleanses you. This is one of the great joys when you become a Christian. It's like, oh, all my sin is gone. God doesn't remember it no more, but specifically, it's you're forgiven for His name's sake. Of course, is referring to Christ' namesake, the name of Jesus. And names in the Bible, they don't just—they're not just a way to refer to people. They stand for kind of who you are as a person. And we still sometimes use it this way, right? Um, we'll say this person is—they're—they're they're, uh, uh, making a bad name for themselves. What does that mean? It Doesn't mean that they're like. They have a bad name. It means that they're doing stuff that reflects poorly on their character and their integrity. That's why the third commandment in the Ten Commandments says, "You shall not take God's name in vain." We tend to think that means don't you know don't you say the word God in, in ways that are are you know trivial. That's probably true too. But it's, it, it's saying don't treat God's being, His character, His personality in a trivial, trite way. So when it says that your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. It's saying you are for, the, the causal factor in why you are forgiven of your sins is because of Christ and what he has done. That's it. You're not forgiven because you love one another well. You're not forgiven because you love God well. You're not forgiven because you have lived a particularly noble life or ignoble life. You are forgiven for his name's sake. Period. This is one of the great joys of a new Christian. Delight light and the forgiveness of sins. But secondly, it's joy in coming to know the Father. One of the results of the forgiveness of sins is that now we have fellowship with God. And we don't just know God as the great I am, as the holy and powerful creator. We know him as Father. So Romans, this is what Paul gets at in Romans 8, 15 to 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Using that word Abba, it doesn't quite mean Daddy, but it's close. It's a more informal, uh, so Av would be the word for Father. Abba, it's kind of an informal way to call God Dad. When, we, when your sins are forgiven, you don't just know God as kind of the mystical one to whom we kind of want to have mystical union with in some kind of otherworldly way. As God is our dad. Loves us in the way a dad loves his kids. A new Christian may not be able to define justification. They might not know their church history. They may not even be familiar with large parts or even most of the Bible. All they know, that their sins have been wiped away, and they know God. This has been true of my experience. I grew up in a Christian home. I was a missionary kid. I mean, I knew the gospel, but I did not become a Christian until I was fourteen, and I went to a Christian camp. I had said the sinner's prayer six times before this, right? You know, making sure it worked. And I go to this camp, and it's just like my—I don't know how to describe it. But it's like my eyes were opened, and I also understood I really do need to be forgiven for my sins, and it's only found in Christ. And maybe even more significant is I knew God was real. I knew he was real. I knew he knew who I was. And he was beautiful. And I wanted to serve him and love him. I'd been to church my whole life. I'd, it, like, I would have argued with someone who said God didn't exist in an intellectual level. But all of a sudden, I knew God. I had fellowship with God. Again, there was many other parts of the faith I did not know. But I, just, I knew I was forgiven. And I knew that I knew God. These are the great joys of first, when we first become Christians. And there's something about reflecting on them that reminds us of what's important in the Christian faith. It's interesting. So, he, again, he's writing these primarily to those who are new Christians in the faith. But there's also a sense in which he's writing this to the whole congregation. Because when he writes to you, he says, my little children, he, he uses that term elsewhere for the whole church. So in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin." There's a sense in which he's also writing this, not just to those who are new in the faith, but to those who've been walking with Christ for years and decades. Because the factor of the matter is, is, although when we first come to Christ, these are the truths that delight our hearts, as we walk with Christ more, because reality is complex, our faith must become complex and nuanced. And we struggle to understand. And that's a good part of the faith. But sometimes we can begin to forget these basic truths. And forget, I don't mean in the sense that we can't recall them, but in the sense that they no longer animate us. They're no longer the things that are driving us, that are giving us our joy. And when that happens, when the forgiveness of sins becomes boring to us, when the fellowship with the Father is no longer as significant to us as whatever else, that's when we lose our center. That's when we get imbalanced. Some of us in this room have done some pretty impressive things in our lives, some of us will go on to do some pretty impressive things, but those are all just cliff notes to the truth that you're forgiven for the sake of Christ and you are known by the Father. These are not basics that we master and move on to what's important. It's not like mathematics, you've got to learn arithmetic before you move on to algebra and calculus and the fun stuff. It's like a foundation of a house. A foundation affects everything. It affects the whole shape and structure of the house. If the foundation is weak, if it's cracking, if it's crumbling, if it was never there in the first place, the house will fall. That's how these truths are. And that's why John doesn't just write to new Christians, but he writes to mature Christians as well. Reflect on these things. For a Christian, there is no greater truth than the forgiveness of sins and fellowship with the Father. That's the first point, again, to new Christians. Second point, to mature Christians. You know Jesus. Follow along in the first part of verse 13 and first in the middle part of verse 14. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And again, verse 14 I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. First John is unique in that it was written so late compared to all the other New Testament epistles that there actually were fathers and mothers in the faith in the church he's writing to. So again, this is probably written in the early 90s. Compare that to Galatians, which was probably written in the mid 40s. So many of Paul's epistles, he's writing to churches that were founded three or four years ago. And so the the, the oldest Christian in the faith has been a Christian for four years. But John is writing in the 90s, and so there really are Christians who've been walking with the Lord for decades, and so he can write to those who are fathers and mothers in the faith. And you may notice that he just repeats himself verbatim. You know, where he writes to the children, he has two different encouragements, but when he writes to those who are mature in the faith, he just says one thing. You know him who is from the beginning. Now we have to ask, okay, who is he talking about? Who is him who is from the beginning? And obviously it's God, but more specifically, it's Christ. In 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have looked and seen with our eyes, this is what we proclaim to you, which is the gospel message embodied in the life of Jesus Christ. You know him who is from the beginning is not just God, but it's Jesus Christ. And the point is that these mothers and fathers in the faith, they know Jesus. They know him because they've walked with him. They've been obedient to him. They've cast themselves upon him. They've trusted in him for many, many years. As John Stott writes, they've pressed deep into their communion with the Lord. And their knowledge of him has deepened and ripened as they've gone on. They've reflected on sin and grace and forgiveness and justice And God's goodness and the person of Christ for years and for decades and this formed their heart in such a way that they know Christ. They know the one who is from the beginning and specifically, I think what John is getting at is that they know the eternal nature of Christ. The Jesus who first called them when they were young is still the same Jesus that they worship decades later. People come and go. Movements come and go. Governments come and go. This Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And they know that because they've seen it. It's one thing to stand up here and tell you that. It's another thing to have seen it. These are those who can pray with Moses. His great prayer in Psalm 90 where he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You've been our refuge in all generations, not just this generation, but the previous one and the one before it, in fact, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. They can pray that with Moses because they've seen it with their eyes. I like to think of these mothers and fathers in the faith as deep pools of water. It may look calm on the top. It may not have the, the excitement and fun of youth, but they go deep. And out of this depth, they can pull out the fruits of wisdom, the fruits of decades of reflection and faithfulness and obedience to Christ. I think there's some implied application here. Um, For those of us who are not mature Christians, we're in either the new Christian or the young person Christian phase, I think the implied application here is that this does not happen automatically with age. Uh, There are many old fools and there are many wise young people. Gray hair is no more a guarantee of wisdom than dark hair is a guarantee of folly. This happens from what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. It comes from following Christ and doing the small things, but doing them faithfully for many years. Many years of reading and reflecting on God's word, many years of prayer, of engaging in Christian fellowship. Of evangelism, of repentance, and of course, point one of 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 reflecting and reappropriating the beauty of the forgiveness of sins for Christ, for the sake of His name, relationship with the Father. And so, if if we you know if, if if you're like me or you, you know you you're not old in the faith yet, the question is: Are are we doing these now? It's not like we'll one day wake up at sixty five and be like, okay, now's the time for me to become a mother and father in the faith. And the patterns that you set now, I used to work at a a job, I was a recruiter, and um, one of the the truums we use is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Are you doing these now? If not, then start doing them. To older Christians, uh, I have this to say, one of the greatest privileges of my life uh, has been pastoring a church that has many mothers and fathers in the faith, that have deep pools, people who have loved the Lord well and have walked with Him. It's been a privilege. And I think the only thing I could say is to continue in the way that you began, in the way that you've walked. It may look different for some of us as the body breaks down and you're not able to be as involved, you're not able to lead in the same way, but continue. Continue in the way. Don't grow weary. Don't grow discouraged until you see Jesus face to face. This is our second point. To mature Christians, you know Jesus. Finally, to the young Christians, you have overcome the evil one. Look at verses 13b. We see his encouragement he gives here to them. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. There's a reminder here for us. Uh, it's a reminder of what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. The reminder is that our our discipleship, our, our life of following Christ is not Primarily an internal psychological struggle against our sin nature, but that we have an enemy who is outside of us, who wants to destroy us. We live in a warfare. We live in a wartime. But these young Christians, as John affirms them, they have prevailed. They've overcome the evil one. If you want to get real nerdy, uh, you know the where the brand Nike gets its name from as the runner from... Thermopylae or whatever that battle was comes in. He says Nike, which is the Greek word for victory. It's the same word used here, prevailing. They've had victory. What was once a a, a life and death battle, they've, they've conquered. How has that happened? Well, this John gives in the second encouragement in the last part of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. How have they overcome the evil one? Well, they're strong. Okay, how are they strong? Because the word of God abides in them. What is the word of God? I think it's probably best summed up in chapter 2, verse 24, where he says, Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. Again, this is before the New Testament was written. What is it that they'd heard from the beginning? It's the gospel proclamation. It's the teaching of the apostles who had received it from Christ himself. It's what will eventually be written down as the New Testament. It says, the cause that allowed them to overcome is that they had allowed what they had heard from the beginning about Jesus to abide in them. Not merely intellectual retention, it sets up home in them, it forms them, it, it impacts them. This is the language of virtue. Uh, virtue is a pretty ancient concept, it was uh, developed by the ancient Greeks. Actually, it is very tied to warrior culture. The original Olympic Games, which were not like what we have now, they would not make it on public television. They were rather gruesome. But the idea of virtue is tied to the Greek idea of excellence. It was how do we form men, it would have been men in the military, so that when they encounter, you know, a battle, they don't run. How do we form them in such a way that they're willing to lay down their lives for their brothers? The Olympic Games are the same way. How do we, you know, you can't just show up at the Olympics and think you're going to win the marathon. Like, how do you form yourself so that you can run this race well? That's the idea of virtue. It's It's in terms of what are the character developments within us? Who are we as people that enable us to live in certain ways? Now, we tend to think just primarily in terms of deeds, Like what we actually do, our actions. We think of good deeds, bad deeds, you know, good deeds. You help uh, an elderly person across the street, right? You you turn the cheek when someone insults you. Bad deeds, cheat on your taxes or whatever. And so it's like, do the good deeds, don't do the bad deeds. And if you do the bad deeds, stop doing the bad deeds. That's where we we end. But this is the language of virtue. He's not telling them, hey, do these things. Be formed so that you become the kind of person who very regularly will turn the cheek. Become the kind of person who would never cheat on your taxes. Let the word of God abide in you. Let it remain in you until it forms you. Until it makes you like our Lord. What does it look like, though, to allow the word of God to abide in us? What does it look like to develop virtue? Well, it involves things we do. One of the most formative things you as a Christian can do, I'm going to, the most formative thing you as a Christian can do is be deeply involved in a church. You know, Jesus was very wise in that he instituted a church. He didn't just call Christians to, 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 you know, kind of accept Jesus personally and live on their lives, but he he called them into a, a community. And to come and and not just you know come and 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 receive, but to actually be involved, to know and be known, to serve. This is incredibly formative. There's all kinds of social, you know, social psychological studies that show that we're deeply impacted by our communal ties, by our relationships. Jesus knew that. That's why he instituted a church. If you want to be formed into the type of person that's going to overcome the you know, foils of the evil one, in the first place is invest in a church be family it's more formative than anything else you can do promise you of course we also have spiritual disciplines I mean what's a spiritual discipline it's it's a habit a thing we do to form us that's why we read the Bible and fast and pray and evangelize and, and all the other you know practice solitude and silence these are habits that we do that form us to be the kind of people who will overcome the evil one and the list can go on they're habits that form us and form what we love and care about and what's possible for us to do and not to do. At the same time, they're, you know, uh, again, habits form us. They don't just form habits, they actually form us as people. Non Christian habits can form us as well. That's why we've got to be, be careful. If we want to be the kind of people who are going to overcome the evil one, it's not just a matter of having good Christian habits. It's also being careful about our non-Christian habits are. I mean, media consumption, how much we consume, what we consume. We tend to think of, okay, is it sin for me to watch this or not? And that's like, that's missing the boat. It's how is this going to form you? How is sitting in front of a TV for four hours going to form you in terms of what you think is important and what you care about? How is the message baked into this program going to form us? How is social media forming us? How we engage with it? These form us. The point is clear, though. How does a young Christian overcome the evil one? He lets God's self-revelation, the word of God, form and mold them more and more until they become the type of people who regularly overcome the evil one. In conclusion, the early Christians were a lot like us. It's interesting, when you read the New Testament, the reason it still speaks so profoundly 2,000 years later, is that they were people just like us. They had doubts, they had struggles, they lived in a hostile culture. They even had vicious disagreements between professing Christians. That's what the church split was. And so John pauses in the midst of this letter to affirm these ordinary Christians living in an ordinary world that's very similar to ours, to encourage them that they are the true church, that their sins have been forgiven they know the father they know Christ the one from the beginning and they have overcome the evil one if i was going to maybe sum up john's encouragement to the church i think paul's words in philippians 1:6 might be appropriate where paul writes to the philippians he says i'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ yeah, they've gone through a church split. Yes, things are, are, are hard and confusing. They don't know what's going on. But he's like, look, the one who began a good work in you, he's going to complete it. Your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. You know Christ. You've overcome the evil one. The God who did this work in you, he's not going to drop you. He's not going to abandon you. This is true for them and it's true for us. It doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or if you've been walking with Christ for 60 years the God who first turned you towards him, the Christ you first fell in love with, the God who first pursued you, he will continue his work in your life. He will walk with us for all of our years until his work is completed. And then we'll see our Lord face to face. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we reflect on on these affirmations and these encouragements, Lord, may they move us, may they form us, may they change us. May we never go tired of what the forgiveness of sins means, of the new life you've given us. May we never go tired of the joy of walking with God of knowing the one whom every human heart longs for. May all of us grow to be Christians who are deep pools, who have walked with you all our days, all the way until the end. Preserve our faith for your namesake. sake. Amen.